Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the business week ended 31st March 2023. This is Ian Haydock. This time, 10 big upcoming US biosimilar launches, Kiskale strikes gold in early adjuvant breast cancer, Zolgensma shows the promise and limitations of gene therapy, Chinese biotechs advancing multiple ADCs, and Scrip asks about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the biopharma industry. Despite continued uncertainty about how exactly the US biosimilars market will evolve, US spending on biosimilars is poised to grow substantially from 2023 to 2027, generating billions in US healthcare savings, according to a report by the IQVIA Institute for Human Data Science. Jessica Mel writes that at least 10 molecules are expected to face biosimilar competition in the period from 2023 to 2027, which will drive growth of the US biosimilars market, according to the IQVIA report, which was released in February. Those biosimilars will be versions of some of the biggest-selling pharmaceutical brands, including AbbVie's Humira, Johnson & Johnson's Stellara, and Regeneron's Ilea. While IQVIA's outlook from the US biosimilars market is encouraging for manufacturers of the copycat entrants, the market research company's forecast incorporates a wide range of variability. Overall spending on biosimilars is expected to increase to $20 billion to $49 billion in 2027, from $10.2 billion in 2022. The wide range takes into account various factors around pricing, access and prescribing behaviours. At the same time, US healthcare savings over the next five years stemming from use of these biosimilars are projected to exceed $180 billion, the firm said. But uncertainties remain as market events to date suggest a wide range of market outcomes are still possible, IQVIA cautioned. Even with slower biosimilar adoption, more competitive discounting and price reductions by innovators to compete against, biosimilars still deliver savings to the US healthcare system. AbbVie, for example, has said it expects much of the 37% revenue erosion it is forecasting for Humira in 2023 will come from price reductions rather than volume declines, indicating the pressure of the biosimilar is significantly impacting the brand price even without widespread adoption. Cumulative biosimilar sales over the next five years are expected to total $129 billion at the base case, ranging from $79 billion to $163 billion, depending on volume uptake and price discounts IQVIA predicted. Biosimilar spending in 2027 is expected to rise to $38.5 billion in the US at the base case, with scenarios ranging from $20 to $49 billion. The more than $180 billion in savings expected to result from biosimilars over the next five years are four times more than the savings generated from biosimilars over the last five years, which were $40 billion. Over the last 10 years, $36 billion of US biosimilar spending was associated with savings of $56 billion, compared to what spending would have been without them, IQVIA said. Novartis's CDK4-6 inhibitor Kiskali has reduced risk of disease recurrence in the pivotal 5,100 patient Natalie trial in early breast cancer patients, 
with positive data in the intermediate risk population, differentiating it from rival Eli Lilly's Verzenio. Natalie enrolled HR positive HER2 negative patients, including those with stage 2A, 2B and 3 tumours, regardless of nodal involvement. An interim analysis showed 400 mg Kiskali plus endocrine therapy met the invasive disease-free survival primary endpoint versus ET alone in patients at both high and intermediate risk of recurrence, leading the Independent Data Monitoring Committee to recommend stopping the trial. Novartis said full data would be presented at an upcoming medical meeting and submitted to regulatory authorities worldwide. Meanwhile, the company is continuing with patient follow-up, including for long-term outcomes such as overall survival, Ayesha Sharma writes. Kiskali was approved for the treatment of HR-positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer patients at the 600mg dose back in 2017, but a label expansion to the early breast cancer space would be meaningful, as more than 90% of patients diagnosed with breast cancer have this form of the disease. Most early breast cancer patients are diagnosed and treated early on, but the risk of the cancer returning peaks at three years after diagnosis. ET is administered to prevent this, but 30 to 60% of HR-positive HER2-negative patients treated with that therapy still remain at risk of recurrence. Kiskali's success in both the high- and intermediate risk groups, which represent $2 billion and $4 billion opportunities respectively, means the drug could win a broad-label expansion. This is important because on 3rd of March, Lilly's rival CDK4-6 inhibitor Vazenio won US approval in combination with ET for HR-positive HER2-negative EDC, but only in those patients at high risk of recurrence. However, with Kiskali set to win an approval in the larger intermediate-risk population, the tables could turn. Analysts have previously described Natalie as a $6 billion to $8 billion opportunity for Kiskali from a total product peak sales forecast of $10 billion. Nearly four years on since its US approval, Novartis' gene therapy Zolgensma has transformed and extended the lives of several thousand infants born with the most severe form of spinal muscular atrophy who would otherwise have died before their second birthday. Andrew McConaughey writes, the company has just released long-term data following up many of the first dozen or so patients who were treated nearly seven years ago in the phase one start study when they were just a few months old, but already showing symptoms of the deadly disease. The 10 patients in the LT001 follow-up study were still alive and with sustained benefits up to 7.5 years after dosing with the one-time gene therapy. The study is now at its halfway point, with Novartis aiming to follow all patients for a total of 15 years after treatment. The results have confirmed the status of Zilgensma as the gold standard treatment for SMA and makes Novartis's therapy the poster child for the adeno-associated virus-based gene therapy field. That's because it's not only a clinical success but also a commercial one, reaching sales of $1.37 billion last year and overcoming healthcare systems' resistance to its high upfront price, which at $2.1 million in the US is one of the highest in the world. At the same time, the results do not represent a cure for the disease. 
Freedom from severe breathing and swallowing problems and ability to stand unassisted are among the key long-term goals, but patients are still very much living with the disease. The LT001 results showed all 10 patients were free of permanent ventilation and all fed orally, although six required feeding support. Intrathecal administration is an important next step for Zolgensma, which is currently only administered intravenously into patients under two years of age. The intrathecal candidate, called OAV101, is likely to work more effectively in SMA type 2 patients as it concentrates the gene therapy in the area where it's most needed and avoids systemic exposure. Asked about Novartis's next move in AAV gene therapy, Citra Tauscher-Wisniewski, who's Vice President of Clinical Development and Analytics at Novartis Gene Therapies, told Script the company remained very committed to the field, but declined to detail what the company's next therapeutic target might be. We are still interested in areas such as neurology or neuromuscular diseases and paediatric indications, but it's really all about what is the best indication to target with gene therapy modalities, she said. Chinese pharma companies are tweaking the tumour-killing payloads of their antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs, as the key components of these emerging oncologic agents comes to the fore in the global race for potential best-in-class therapies. While a number of candidates are up for grabs, ADC developers in China are primarily focused on the DNA topoisomerase 1 inhibitor class, already well represented by the commercial success of Daiichi Sankyo's HER2 targeting ADC and HER2. Dexian Rice at Sichuan Keelum Pharmaceutical has emerged as one of the few domestic firms in China aspiring to play catch-up. The Chengdu-based generics major, through its innovative arm Keelum Biotech, is developing a new generation top-1 inhibitor called KL610348, Keelan Biotech's Chief Scientific Officer Zhang Yang Tan told the annual Enmore Bioconference held 18th-19th March in Suzhou. Keelan will firstly load KL610348 onto the ADC candidate SKB501, although the executive did not disclose the intended tumour target. Keelan has also developed another top-1 inhibitor, KL610023, which has been integrated into the clinical stage trophoblast antigen 2 targeting ADC SKB264, the Claudine 18.2 targeting SKB315, and Nectin 4 targeting SKB410. All three of these assets were included in Keelan's huge licensing deal worth up to $11.8 billion with Merck & Co. in 2022, although neither side has yet disclosed whether SKB501 is also part of that alliance. Similarly, two other Chinese firms, Jiangsu Hengri Medicine and small biotech Mabwil Bioscience, are now taking other ADC projects into the clinic. Hengri's lead ADC, the HER2 targeting SHRA1811, has a payload resembling NHER2, but is expected to be differentiated from that product on safety, said Lian Shan Zhang, who's the Chinese company's deputy general manager. Shanghai-based Mabwell has also developed a top-1 inhibitor payload it calls M-toxin, which is initially loaded to the still preclinical stage 9MW2921 
The firm's chief medical officer, Xu Hai Huang, said at the Xujiao meeting, without disclosing the target. Meanwhile, other Chinese biotechs are busying themselves with the development of different types of payloads in license from foreign farm partners. Hangzhou-based Bliss Biopharmaceutical, for instance, has licensed an Arabulin linker payload from Morphotech, which is a subsidiary of Japan's Azai, to develop its own ADC programs, which include the HER2 targeting BB1701, EGFR targeting BB1705, and CD73 targeting BB1709. Finally, part 10 of the annual Scrip Asks series poses questions on diversity, equity and inclusion to industry leaders. Their responses reflected the dual imperative to improve access to health for marginalised groups and to promote DEI within their own organisations and workforces. Diversity, equity and inclusion must be high priorities for multiple reasons, said Gil Bashi, who's managing partner, chair global health at Finn Partners and a member of the Incubators, Accelerators and Equity Committee of the Prix Gallien Award. Unless we address social determinants of health, the drivers that create despair, disease and death, we will never fulfil the mission of an industry dedicated to healing, he added. Diversity and inclusion are already high on the agenda, and the importance of these parameters will increase, predicted Stefan Christgau, who's founding partner of Nordic life sciences investment firm EA Ventures. Investors and companies that do not work seriously with this will simply not be viable in the future. For Sarah Howell, CEO of Aracor Therapeutics, which develops enhanced formulations of existing medicines, the industry has already progressed to a point where there is a much broader understanding of DEI and that this includes age, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic inclusion and diversity of thought. She called for leaders within Biopharma to lead the way on DEI, adding, I am hopeful that we will make additional strides in this area in 2023. But Joseph Kim, Chief Strategy Officer at clinical research platform company Proofpilot, urged companies to take more action. What the best biopharma companies will do is engage in long-term investment in communities to overcome the barriers to inclusion. This takes funding, people, hard goals and real strategies, not speeches. The least they can do is ensure all communications and content are designed with a high degree of cultural competency and delivered to the right folks with precision. The leaders, Scripps surveyed, explored several fields of activity when it comes to DEI, reflecting their views about actions to be taken within biopharma organisations, from recruitment to employee development to leadership, as well as the ways in which the industry interacts with and can positively impact society as a whole. Please see the article in full for a wide-ranging series of views on areas including access to healthcare, leadership, workforce, recruitment, diversity of perspectives, education and reputation. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. All these stories are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and are just a fraction of those appearing in script last week. Log in to access all of our content in full or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.